Again, glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 48. Give you a quick recap of where we've been. We've been walking through Genesis all year. We're approaching the end. Particularly from chapter 12 to chapter 50, there's this underlying or overarching, however you want to see it, um, desire of God to form a people, to make a nation. It's easy for us to get wrapped up in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph and Jacob because they're easy for us to grab onto. But all of those stories are part of this bigger picture, which is God's making a people for himself. We looked at that last week, reminded ourselves of that. In terms of the story, kind of what's happening in the story arc, Jacob and all of his family have moved to Egypt due to a famine. He's taken everybody, 70 men plus wives and daughters. They don't get counted, sorry. And so there's probably 150, 200 people who've moved to Egypt and they're living in a place called Goshen. And last week we said the importance of Goshen is it's separate. It's away from the cities of Egypt, uh, the Egyptian cities. So they're outside of the flow of that culture. And so it's allowing God, while they're over here, tucked away to grow them and to multiply them. And we said for us, the takeaway was we need that too. We need Goshen. We need this place. And that's kind of in quotes for us. It's not a physical place. We need a place where God is forming us as his people because no criticism of the place where we live, but it's not going to form you into the man or woman that God wants you to be. We talked about the Bible and worship and Christian community and how God uses those things to form us and shape us. Today we're going to look at the last few moments of Jacob's life. He's a patriarch. There's three of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the fathers of our faith, and when Jacob dies, it's the end of an era. So today we're looking at the final two acts of the last patriarch. As you read your Bible, sometimes it's hard to keep up with chronology. Genesis 50 is kind of a footnote to what we're going to read today. We'll look at that next week. And then Exodus 1 starts, but it's 400 years from what we're reading now. You don't get that, but it's, there's a huge time gap between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1, between what we're reading now and what happens in Exodus 1. And things change dramatically. So again, in many respects, this is the end of an era. Jacob is the last of these three patriarchs, and these are the final acts that he takes uh, before he dies. So we'll start in verse 48. Uh, excuse me, chapter 48, verse 1. Sometimes later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat upon his bed. Remember, Jacob and Israel are the same person. This is 17 years after uh, Jacob has come to Joseph in Egypt. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. There he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. There's that idea of forming a people. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he said, Who are these? These are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. 
Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they greatly increase on the earth. So just to be clear, what's going on here is Jacob is adopting his grandsons. Joseph's two oldest sons, Manasseh first and then Ephraim. Manasseh's the oldest, then Ephraim. Jacob is adopting those and making them his sons legally. I think they probably talked about it before this. I don't think that's the first Joseph had heard about it. But that's what's going on. It's a significant event. Jacob is dying, and it says he rallies that word. He rallies himself. He sits up. This is a solemn procedure. I don't want to get into all the details, but the, the questions that they're asking and the bowing, that's all formal vocabulary. So this, is, this isn't just a father and a son kind of doing something before dad dies. It's a formal ceremony where Jacob is adopting Ephraim and Manasseh and saying these kids are going to be reckoned as mine. So he's about to die, and he's about to give all of his sons something. And he's saying, Ephraim and Manasseh, even though they're my grandsons, I'm going to treat them in the inheritance like they're my sons. Any other kids you have, you, they're yours. These two are mine. And so what Joseph agrees, and so he puts the older one here in front of Jacob's right hand. Your right hand was your hand of blessing. The oldest boy got the blessing. So he puts Manasseh in front of the right hand and Ephraim in front of the left because that's the way it should be. The oldest boy should get the blessing. What Jacob does is he does this, and he crosses his hands, and he puts his right hand on the younger one's head, and he puts his left hand on the older one's head, which is not he should not be doing that culturally. Right hand on the older one, but he doesn't do that. He does this, and we'll see what, how Joseph feels about that. When Joseph saw his father, play, oh, excuse me, let me tell you this real quick. Why is he doing that? A couple of reasons. One I'll get to in a second for this whole thing with Rachel. That seems like, why is that thrown in there? Remember, Rachel was his favorite wife and she died young. And so this is Jake, oh, excuse me, Jacob's way of saying, I'm, I'm, she's going to get these also. They're going to count as her children in terms of filling out the tribes. And so that's why that idea of Rachel, that seems like it's just kind of thrown in there for no reason. That's part of why he's doing this. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Remember, Jacob can't see that well. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. Remember that phrase, a group of nations. He blessed them that day, and he said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I give one more ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge I took for the Amorites with my sword 
and my bow. So there we see Jacob, his whole life, plays favorites. He continues to do that, gives Joseph, who is his favorite, a little extra inheritance. So this blessing, significant, when the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they talk, it's different than when we talk. There's weight and significance behind their words. And their blessings are considered irrevocable. Once it's come out of their mouth, they can't take it back. I don't know if you remember when Isaac blessed Jacob. Remember, Jacob stole the blessing that was due to his older brother Esau. He and his mom conned Isaac into giving him the blessing. I don't know if you remember that. But Isaac blessed Jacob, and then Esau comes in, and he's distraught. And he says, Dad, do you have anything left for me? And the answer was no, I don't. Every, I shot all my bullets already. There's nothing left for you. For us, we don't get that. It's just words. Why can't he? And he was kind. Like, why can't he just fix it or take backs or cross his fingers? or Why can't he do something to make it not work? But for these guys, when they spoke, there was this divine weight to what they said where it was irrevocable, it can't be taken back, and it was considered predictive. This is what the future is going to be for you and all of your descendants. And so that's why Joseph is so concerned. It's not like, oh, this is just a senile man and he just messed up his arms. It's like, no, this has implications for generations. We've got to get this right. And what Jacob says to him is, I know, like, I get it. And this is the way it's supposed to be. I think he's being led by the Lord. This is the way it's supposed to be. As we read all of these blessings, we're going to look at the blessings that Jacob gives to every one of his kids. We're going to move through them fast, don't worry. I want you to be thinking not so much this is what happens in the life of this individual man. This wasn't so much about Ephraim the man and Manasseh the man. It was about the tribes that came from them. Again, I said Exodus is 400 years in the future. And this, these families, these groups of 10 and 12 people, when you open Exodus, they're 100,000 people. They explode. Every one of these tribes explodes. And so these starts off as 70 men, winds up 600, and, what did we say last week? 603,550 men. I mean, this massive growth during these 400 years. And so that's where you see these blessings played out. You don't see it played out in the life of the individual. You see it played out in the life of his descendants. And if you read, if you're interested in this, you can read um, Joshua, you can read Judges, and you can read um, Chronicles. First Chronicles will help you see how all of these blessings that Jacob speaks wind, wind up being played out in the lives of the descendants of his children. So Ephraim, what happens with him? Israel, this is way in the future, is divided into two kingdoms, northern and a southern. And the northern kingdom is called Ephraim. Jacob said, There's, you're going to be a group of nations, and the northern ten tribes all take on the name Ephraim. It is the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom. And so you see this prophecy, this blessing being played out in the life of their descendants. So now we're going to look at what Jacob says to all the rest of his sons. Remember, he's treating Ephraim and Manasseh like his. And so these are the blessings that he's given to all 12 of his kids. Then Jacob calls for his sons, gather around so I can tell you what will happen in the days to come. So he's looking forward to the future. Here's where this thing is headed. Here's, how these, uh, here's what's going to happen for your descendants. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. 
For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. I don't know if you remember, there was a story we looked at back in earlier in Genesis where Reuben, as a firstborn, slept with his dad's concubine. He slept with one of Jacob's concubines, which was not just gross, it was, it was a, not even just disrespectful, it was a sign that said, I'm taking over. It was rebellious. Sleeping with your father's concubine was saying, all this is mine now. And Jacob didn't do anything about it then. He didn't do one thing about it. It says he, he doesn't respond, but obviously he's been thinking about it for a long time. And he says to Reuben, basically, you're done. You squandered the rights. As the firstborn, everything was put on a platter for you. Firstborn sons had it all handed to them. And you had all of these things, and you squandered it all because of your choices. And if you look forward in, in the uh, history of Israel, Reuben has no kings. Reuben has no priests. Reuben has no military leaders. Reuben has no prophets. No one of note, no leader ever comes from Reuben. So he should have been, as the firstborn, He should have been the leader of his family. But because of his sinful action, he's disqualified, and there's no leader that comes from his descendants moving forward. Next two. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they've killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. You remember this story as well. Their sister, Dinah, they were full-blood sisters with Dinah. She was raped by a guy named Shechem who lived in Shechem. And what they do in response, completely disproportionate, they go and wipe out every man in the city, and then they take all the women and children, they take all the livestock, they completely pillage and plunder this city. Their response is, It's not proportional to what happened to their sister, as bad as it is. And that's what Jacob is saying. And again, if you remember the story, Jacob doesn't do anything about it at the time. He's not necessarily the model of what we want to be as parents. But he didn't forget. And so he's watched them over the years, and he sees this in them, this cruel streak, this anger in them. And he says, I'm disavowing everything that you've done, and y'all are going to be scattered. And again, if you read forward, in Joshua and Judges, what you'll see is Simeon, as a tribe, their land. Remember, everybody gets dirt. All 12 of these tribes get dirt. Simeon's dirt is a small patch in the middle of Judah. So Judah gets a big plot of land, and Simeon's is in the middle of it. And they, they basically get swallowed up. As you read through the Old Testament, Simeon, as a tribe, fades because they get swallowed up by Judah. And Levi doesn't get anything. They don't get any dirt. The Levites get 48 towns with the area around them for, uh, for their livestock, and they're spread throughout the land. They're scattered. Now, they're priests. It's not that they're not cursed at all. They have a great responsibility and privilege to be priests of the temple, but they don't get an area. They don't get a region that's theirs. They're spread out over uh, the promised land. Now, before we get to Judah, let me say this. This might be uh, a little bit too much detail, but I want you to follow what's going on. Firstborn sons get everything. It's the, it's the birthright. We've used that word before. And there's two elements. One is leadership in your family, and the second element is a double portion of the inheritance. So you get family leadership, and then you get more stuff. So if there's two sons, the oldest gets two-thirds, and the youngest gets one-third. If there's three sons, the oldest gets half, and the younger two get a fourth. You get that. They get double. They get two shares of the inheritance, and their younger brothers 
get one share. Their sisters don't get anything. Again, sorry, ladies. You don't get counted, and you don't get any stuff. So what you see here is Jacob does something very unusual. He takes the birthright, and he splits it in two. Normally, the oldest gets both. And what Jacob does is he takes it and gives it to two different kids. He gives the leadership piece to Judah. Reuben out, Simeon out, Levi out. Next in line is Judah. He gets the leadership piece. And that's what we'll see when we look here at Judah. Let's start in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. There's that idea of leadership. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. There's that idea of leadership again. Until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branches. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. That last section is just about how rich he is. He's so rich he can attach it or put a donkey up next to his nicest grapevine because he knows the donkey's going to eat the grapes and the vine and he doesn't care. He has so much money. He's so rich he washes his clothes in wine, which to me would stain them, but that's, he's, he doesn't care. He's so rich. So uh, that's what that second section is. The middle part is this idea of leadership, and we see that playing out in Judah's future. David, the greatest king in Israel's history, is a descendant of Judah. And we see David's children sitting on the throne. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage, who's also a descendant of David and a descendant of Judah. One of the phrases or the titles, the labels that we have for Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. You just read a lot about lions There's this picture that Jacob has thousands of years before Jesus is born that says there's a lion, and it's Jesus who ultimately fulfills that passage, that prophecy. He's the one from whom the scepter will never depart. And we're going to move through this middle set of sons really quickly. We don't know a ton about them. So I'm going to read this, and Alex will put up on the screen a few thoughts about them, but we won't spend a lot of time on these guys. Again, we don't know a ton about them. Zebulon will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw bone donkey. That's not a criticism or a slam. It would be for us, not an insult to them. Lying down, sitting among the sheep pens. When he saw how good uh, is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, excuse me, when he saw that, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heel so that the rider tumbles backwards. That's not negative either. Um, I look for your deliverance, Lord. So that's Jacob pausing and praying this prayer because both Dan and Gad have tough futures. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Again, I won't spend a ton of time here. We don't know a lot about them, but what we know, these things play out in the history of their tribes. Issachar was, had a great chunk of dirt, but they were constantly um, 
subject to the Canaanites. They basically were kind of indentured servants, and there's that idea. They live in a great land, but their shoulder, what does it say? They put their shoulder to the burden, that idea of forced labor. Both Dan and Gad were attacked regularly, and you can see that in their thing, this idea they both, Gad was known for having fierce warriors. One of the great judges from the book of Judges, Samson, was from the tribe of Dan. So you can see how some of those things are being played out. And Jacob, as a father, in the middle of talking about Dan and Gad and kind of seeing things are going to be difficult for their descendants, he prays for God to deliver them. Naphtali didn't have a northern border, and so there's that idea of them being free to roam because they didn't have a northern border. You can, again, look at all of this stuff. Um, You can either read through the Old Testament, those three books, or you can Google it if it's faster for you, and you can see how these things um, kind of play out in the life of these tribes. Joseph is a big one. So Judah, first, he got from the inheritance of the, excuse me, the birthright of the firstborn, Judah got leadership. Joseph gets the stuff. Joseph gets the land. That's why Jacob brought in Ephraim and Manasseh. He doesn't know that's why he brought them in, but that's why God had him adopt those two boys. And so to Ephraim and Manasseh, they get the double portion. We've gone from one man, Joseph, to two, his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they each get a section of dirt. When you read through Joshua, you'll see that. And so that's the double portion. That's the, that firstborn blessing that they get. Judah gets leadership. Ephraim and Manasseh get the double portion. Joseph is a fruitful vine. A fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. That was Joseph's brothers. But his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. Because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Because of your father's God who helps you. Because of the Almighty who blesses you. With blessings of the sky above. Blessings of the deep springs below. Blessings of the breast and womb. Your father's blessings are great excuse me, are greater than the blessings of the ancient monument mountains that, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. We'll go ahead and do Benjamin also. He's last, youngest. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. Benjamites were known for being great warriors. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. So for us, kind of where we're standing, we read that and it's great and maybe it's somewhat interesting to see how those things play out in the future, but what does that have to do with us? Our words don't really weight compare to theirs. When we talk, we don't feel the same sense of significance or weight behind what we're saying. What I want to say to you, I want to encourage you generally, and then I want to speak to a specific group, Uh, here within the body, generally, Proverbs 18, the tongue has a power of life and death. That's true. We say so many words and we hear so many words that it's easy to get lost in triviality. Think of how many things that you say that actually matter. But according to the Bible, in your mouth, you hold the power of life and death. You can encourage people towards life. You can curse people through your words towards death. And I want you to take that seriously, not as weight, but as opportunity and privilege. Every one of you comes into contact with people every day, and if they're going to hear from God, don't hear this as pressure, it's going to come from you. They're not reading the Bible, they're not listening to the fish, 
They're not coming to church. If they're going to hear from God, it's going to be because they're in relationship with you and you were bold to share with them things that God put on your heart for them. I'm not talking about presenting the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm not talking about four spiritual laws or trying to lead people to Jesus. I'm talking simply about encouraging people with, we'll call it prophetic encouragement. Don't get hung up on that word. The difference to me, like telling somebody, you did a great job. Like, that's wonderful. Tell them they did a great job. Tell them they look great in their new shoes. What That's just us being nice and encouraging each other. There's a different type of encouragement as a Christian that I want you to begin to cultivate in your life. You can read this story. We don't have time. Judges 6, 7, and 8. It's the story of Gideon. If you remember, this is during Judges, awful. Everything in Judges is bad. And occasionally God raises up a deliverer to take care of the badness. And Gideon is one of those. And so an angel appears to Gideon who's threshing wheat in a wine press, which is not where you thresh wheat. You thresh wheat out in the open in the highest place so the wind can take the chaff away. You're just throwing up wheat and the kernels are heavy enough they fall back to the ground and the wind blows the chaff away. He's in a wine press, which is basically a hole because he's scared. And this angel appears and says, mighty warrior, and he's anything but. He says, I want this angel says to Gideon, I want you, God wants you to deliver your people. And Gideon says, I'm from the weakest clan, and I'm the least in my family. I'm not the guy. And the angel says, yes, prove it. Show me that you're from God. And so Gideon spreads out all this food on a rock. And the angel touches the food, and it goes up in flames. He says, okay, you're from God. And this angel says, I want you to tear down this pagan altar. And Gideon does it at night, according to the Bible, because he's afraid. Again, mighty warrior. He does it at night because he's afraid. And the next day, everybody wakes up and this altar's gone. And they say, who did it? And Gideon's afraid to own it. His dad, he's a grown man. His dad says, leave him alone. Y'all don't want to come after him. And that kind of plays out. We begin to see a change in Gideon. God says, I want you to use you to deliver from these Midianites. There's 120,000 foreign soldiers. Gideon does the thing with the fleece, you remember that, puts it out one night, God, if you really want me to do this, make the fleece wet and the ground dry, and he does it. The next night, make the fleece dry and the ground wet, and he does it. And then Gideon's ready at that point. He's become a mighty warrior. And so he calls, issues a call, anyone who wants to fight, let's go. And there's 22,000 men. And God says, too many. Anyone who's afraid can leave. 10,000 men, still too many. And so he takes them down by a river and has them do this little test with how they drink. And he gets down. He's got 300 men against 120,000. That's a 400 to 1 ratio. And they go fighting with torches and trumpets and glass jars. That's what they use. And they win. They win. They rout the Midianites. Gideon has become what the angels saw in him originally. And that's the point I want you to pull from that story. You can do that for people. You don't have to be an angel. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. God speaks to you, and he will speak to you about other people. And he will allow you to see who they can be, who he created them to be, not just who they are. For whatever reason, God made Gideon a mighty warrior, and it got covered up under all this other stuff. And he was living like a sissy. But the angel could see through all of that and say, I know who you are. 
And so he called him a mighty warrior, and he encouraged him in that direction. And then Gideon became what he always was, a mighty warrior. And God used him to deliver his people. It wasn't about Gideon. It was about using Gideon to accomplish God's will for him. And the same thing, all of you, each of us, can do the same thing with the people who we come into contact with. Real quick, here's just some things that you can think about practically. What does that look like for me? You can ask. All of you, many of you keep a calendar. Look at your calendar. Who are you meeting tomorrow? Just on your way to the appointment. God, you got anything you want to share with them? Anything that you want to say to them through me? Any way that you want to encourage them? This is not a chance to rip somebody. It's not a chance to correct somebody. It's not a chance to tell somebody what they're doing wrong. It's a chance to bless and encourage. God, how do you want to encourage them? You're their father. Whether they know you or not, you made them. You formed them and shaped them. You know them better than anybody. Anything you want to say through me. They're not reading the Bible. They're not listening to the fish. They're not coming to church. If they're going to hear from God, it's going to be from you. Then, and this is the hardest thing for us, I want you to listen with the assumption that God is going to share something with you. Most of us are fine praying, and then what you say is, well, God didn't share anything with me. Not true. I want you to assume, and this is going to be difficult, I want you to assume that whatever pops into your head is from God. We're going to go back and delete that from the recording, but you've heard it in here. I want you to assume that what, God, what pops into your head is from God. And then I want you to be willing to share it with the person. If it's encouraging, if it's not encouraging, then it's not from the Lord. It, but I want you to take it. it. Can this be encouraging? And I want you to share it with them. And I want you to share it with them in your normal voice. I don't want you to verily, verily, I say unto you, we're not doing that. You don't talk like that. I don't want you to say, God told me. I don't want you to say any of that. I want you to say, I was thinking about you today, and this is what I was, this, kind of, this thought popped into my mind. Does this mean anything to you? That's it. And they'll say yes or no. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being mustard seeds. Mustard seeds are really small, and they're easy to plant. That's what this is. It's, you're scattering mustard seeds. Some of them will take root, and some of them won't. That's not your deal. Your deal is just to be available to share. And I want you to do that. I want you to think through your week. Who are you going to be in contact with? Just ask God. And, and you genuinely may, you may have a draw a complete blank, and if you do, that's fine. But more often than not, you will have, something will pop into your mind. A word, literally one word, or a picture, or a thought, something will pop into your mind. I just want you to share it with the people who you're in contact with, again, if it's encouraging, and see how the Lord uses it. Just a testimony of the mustard seed, mustard tree. When we were starting this church, there was some some folks in leadership who are saying, we need to move to Paulding or Smyrna. That's where we need to do Stonebridge. And I didn't think that. I felt like we need to be in Marietta, but it was really close to Riverstone, and I wasn't sure. And so I went forward for prayer, just like we ask you to do every Sunday, to these two, these, these two missionaries from Thailand who were in town at the time. I don't remember their name. The girl had a boy name. That's all I can remember about them. And I asked her, I said, my name is David, and I'm planting a church. Would you guys pray with me? And they said, yeah, and the girl with the boy name said, you need to plant a church in the ground that you grew up in. She didn't know me from anybody, but I went to Marietta High School, and I went to Marietta Junior High. I was out there, and I went to Westside Elementary School. This is my dirt. And when I shared that with the leadership, they were like, absolutely. And so that's why we're here in large part was because somebody scattered a mustard seed. Somebody in a prayer time was willing to say, hey, 
She didn't know me. Again, she had no idea the impact that that would have. And I don't want you to hear that as pressure. What if I get it wrong? I want you to see it as an opportunity. You never know how God's going to use you. When you're sharing with somebody, you're not telling them who to marry. You're not telling them when they're going to have a baby. You're not telling them to change jobs. It's none of that. All you're doing is encouraging them. And God will use those things. Again, sometimes they get snatched away. There's nothing to it. Other times, churches appear because people are willing to share. Now, I want to speak specifically now as we close to dads. I don't mean to exclude others. But I was reading this about Jacob and what he said to his sons. And I was thinking about us. I'm 39. And so for me, thinking about TV, the dads are Al Bundy and Homer Simpson. Like that's, that's the dad's a punchline. Their kids are smarter than them and their wife manipulates them. And our job is we just kind of bumble through. We don't necessarily have a picture of this kind of a dad who says, I see something in you and I'm going to say this. And again, our words, are they're not like this. But as a dad, you have spiritual authority in the lives of your children. You may not, your dad may have never done this for you, but that's no excuse for you not to do it for your kids. And so I'm asking you and challenging you as dads, if your kids are still in utero or if they're full-grown adults, I want you to take some time. I want you to ask the Lord, what are you doing in my daughter? What are you doing in my son? You knit him or her together in my wife's womb. And I want to know, what are you up to? How can I encourage that? How can I fan the flame of who you made them to be? This is not about teaching your kid how to fish This isn't about directing them into the areas where you necessarily see aptitude. This is stepping back and saying, God, what did you put them here to do? What can I encourage in them that you dropped in them as you were forming and shaping them? And again, I don't want you to hear that as heavy. What if I get it wrong? You're not. Like you can't get it wrong. If you're approaching it with any level of humility, God, thank you for this son or daughter. Show me. And then show me what to do with it. Is this something that I, like Mary, do I just treasure this in my heart and pray for it? Is this something I need to share? Does this need to, is this what the next birthday card is for my kid? Is this a, is this a, a conversation as it occurs? You're going to have to say it more than once. Because most likely, whatever that thing is that God wants to see your kid blossom into, that's the thing the enemy wants to choke out. And so you're going to have to encourage that and fan that flame, think about this angel with Gideon. That's who you can be to your kid. When everything says you're a sissy, the angel says no. And as a dad, you can do that. When everything says... You're stupid or you're dumb, you're ugly, you're nothing. You get to say, no. It's a privilege that you have. Again, it's a privilege and an opportunity. And I want to challenge you. If you don't know how to do that, call me and we'll walk it through. And I'll help you figure it out. But it's in you to do that. Do it in your personality. Use your words. But ask the Lord, what are you seeing here? If you're someone, if you're a single mom in this room and you're going, I wish, then you'll have, you can step into that gap 
Absolutely, you can. But I want to strongly encourage you men to do that. This week, just begin to ask the Lord, what better Christmas present than to give your kid? This is what I see in you. This is the direction I see you going. Not trying to shape your life for you, but as your dad who loves you, this is what I see God's putting into you, and I want to fan that. Let's pray. It's already 12.30, so I'm going, to just, I'm going to close us in prayer, but we are going to have ministry teams. If you want uh, ministry, please come forward. We'll be here to pray with you, um, but I will dismiss you all. And if you're leaving, please just do so quietly so people who want prayer um, aren't disturbed. A couple of different categories. One, it, you may be someone who's like, that's a huge, it's kind of a counseling psychology deal, but you've got this gap because your dad never stepped in and said, this is what I see in you. If that's you, just know God can fill that blank in. Whether your dad's still alive or not, God can fill in that gap. And what you may need this morning is just to hear from him. And if so, we would love to pray with you. Some of you maybe are going, this whole thing of hearing God, and I don't do that. We would love to pray with you that God would increase your confidence and she would recognize his voice in your life. It's also it's Orphan Sunday. You may or may not be aware, and many of you have a heart for orphans. And we want to pray for any here who are fostering or adopting, particularly if you're thinking of doing that. That word from Josh about obedience, I think, is for us today. And it could be that God wants to seal that in your heart this morning, and we want to pray with you that you would step in obedience into that direction. Again, we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on, but if those three things are resonate with you, any of that, we'd love to agree with you for a few minutes. God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. God, I thank you for the calling you have on each of their lives. I thank you that every one of them who is following you is fill, is, has access, access, to you and to your heart and to your mind for others, for people who they're connected to. I thank you that every one of them can be filled with your spirit on an ongoing basis, that their appointments and that their meetings can be not just about the stuff that they're trying to get done, but also opportunities for them and for us to scatter mustard seeds. And so I pray that you would send us out. Seth, when he was singing that last song, said, you know, Gideon had an army of 300. That's about how many people show up to church here every Sunday. Our vision is huge. We want to see our community transformed. If you can defeat 120,000 with an army of 300, what can you do with us? Yielded to you, filled with your spirit, looking to be obedient in terms of encouraging and speaking life into others. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are free to go. And again, if ministry teams would come forward, and any of you that want prayer, if y'all would slip up here as well.